Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello and welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curve, broadcasting live on the Heritage Radio Network. This is Greg Blaze, your host. On today's show, we're going to be talking about creating new cheeses, the research and development process for new creameries, and how cheeses get tweaked and created. I'm excited to have my good friends from the Crown Finish Caves here in Brooklyn in the studio with me, and uh, their silent partner, Jos Volto, who... Uh, just uh, appeared here that I was I was I was I wasn't prepared for, but I'm super happy he's here. Um, I have uh, Benton, uh, Mr. Brown, and I have Sam Frank. So welcome in, and thanks so much for taking time out of your day to come into the show. Yeah, thanks, Anytime. Greg. Thank, thank you. On the line, I have Margot Brooks of the Sugar House Creamery, a farmstead dairying operation in Upper Jay, New York. How are you, Margot? Hello. How uh, Margot's uh, with us via cell phone in upstate New York, so we're. We're going to hope the cell phone gods are with us today, and uh, and they'll smile down on us, and we won't lose her. So I wanted to start with you, Margo. Um, I listened to an episode you did back in 2013 with our uh, Heritage Radio Network Executive Director, Aaron Fairbanks, uh, when you were just starting the creamery. Um, if you're listening to this show, you should definitely go back and find episode 180 of the Farm Report. Um, on that, you talked a little bit about your experience as a cheesemaker at Consider Bardwell, uh, from 2008 to 2012, and then eventually buying your farm and funding all of the equipment and finding all the equipment and getting everything ready for making cheese. Uh, it's a great interview because you really break down the steps you took to make your dream come true, from getting a job as a waitress um, to renovating part of your property for Airbnb. And uh, you still doing that? Yeah, we are still doing that. We have um, we have two spaces now that we rent through Airbnb. Um, a little apartment that we put in last this past summer um, over one of the barns on our property. Um, so we've got two spaces, and, yeah, that's going really well. That's actually probably about 25% of our yearly income we can attribute to Airbnb. Nice. Do you have any vacancies at this time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And there's lots of snow up here, so. Yeah, I seem to see, like, Instagram photos of people up there, like, tubing with you sometimes. Or yes. tobogganing up there, like, uh, just hanging mm-hmm. out. Um, so here we are in 2015, and uh, how are things going on the farm now as compared to when you were on the radio show last? Uh, things are going really well. We were just over a year in production um, with the raw milk sales and cheese. So, um, you know, we just came to our year end and were able to look back at our, our numbers and look at what we had anticipated for our monthly, you know, budgets and expenses and what the reality actually was. And 
we actually did a pretty good job with our projections and our and our business plan, which was nice to see. And um, and things are going well. You know, we're just we're we're hunkering down for the winter right now. We're doing the Airbnb and we're kind of making a lot of our hard alpine style cheese and putting that away in the cave for the long age and um, and just just getting through the winter. And you work with these guys here, uh, the Crown Finish guys, right? I seem to recall buying cheese that came from your creamery um, over the winter. I yeah, mean, yeah, we, we've done a few little collaborative projects with Crown Finish, and we're excited to, to do more in the future, possibly. Very limited, very limited runs. Yeah, you, you want your very limited runs. Yeah, you're one of the lucky ones to have it, Greg. And I appreciated it totally. Um, <laughs> I was wondering if uh, if you could maybe go through the process of like how how do you create new cheeses? Like what what inspires you, and what are the nuts and bolts of getting it done? Well, it is a lot of kind of nuts and bolts. I would say um, for us, it's looking. It was looking kind of just very logically at our set up. Um, So for us, it started with what breed of cow we were going to milk, and we chose brown Swiss because we're up here in the mountains, and our farm is very, um, has a lot of steep, uh, mountainy, hilly pastures, and we wanted a hardy breed that could withstand the winters, that didn't need, you know, a really high-quality forage. So that that went into the breed of cow that we got. Um, And then based on How many do you have, hon? You got twelve. How many do you oh. have? Yeah, we do. We have just um, called the herd. Actually, right right now we only have. Um, we're milking nine right now. Uh-huh. Um, we just we just ended up beefing a couple of our of our herd, but we're going to buy three replacements in the spring. Um, you know, so we started with the breed of cow, and then from there we we tried to think about what cheeses we would want to make to be able to market. Uh, up here to a local to our local marketplace, so we we tried to think about what people up here would want to eat in a cheese, and um, and then we we knew we wanted to do the cave aging process. We really like that part of cheese making the you know the caring of the cheese in the cave, and um, we're very passionate about that aspect of cheese making, and we think it contributes a lot to the flavor of um, of you know, farmstead cheeses, so we knew we wanted to put in a cave and actually and age our own stuff, so that went into it as well. And then just thinking about our product line and what cheeses we could make that would um, we could turn over quickly right. uh, and bring in some cash flow, and then pairing that with the longer age stuff that we're going to sit on for a while. Now that's an, And that's really the thing. Everybody loves cave-aged cheese, but it takes a long time to sell it. And, uh, exactly. You know, but it and it takes a lot of milk to make a relatively small amount of cheese, um, and that's. Uh, do you, but but do you think your love of making cave aged cheeses uh, you drew from your experience as a cheesemaker at Consider Bardwell? Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And from working with Peter Dixon, who who is that's who taught. He's the one who taught me how to make cheese, and he's a huge proponent of you know aging aging your cheese and. Um, and doing it in a in an environment, you know, a real. He he. We talked with him a lot about uh, putting in our cave, and we did, you know, with in terms of airflow and overhead space, and 
just we actually did excavate and bury our cave underground so that we'd have that passively, you know, cooled or heated, depending on the time of year, um, space. And just making, setting up that environment that's really conducive to good, good aging. Now, Sam, I have you here. You worked with Peter Dixon as well, right? And um, did he teach you how to make a great cave using those principles that uh, Margot just talked about? Well, I would say working with Peter was more, at least at Parish Hill Creamery, it was more if you don't have that perfect cave environment, how can you make what you have really work? So where they're aging cheese up at Parish Hill, it's, it's got a long history of cheese aging. It used to be Vermont Shepherd's Aging Cave, and before that, it was a root cellar. Um, but unlike, unlike Margot's Cave, which has the beautiful arches and a lot, a lot of space, theirs is just kind of a more, more of a cube environment uh, with pretty low ceilings. And, uh, you know, it's got maybe some more dampness than some caves, so you'd have to run a fan in order to kind of get the humidity at the right level. So, which is, I think, another, you know, that's also a good valuable lesson to learn. Like, you don't always get that perfect aging environment like maybe Margot and Alex have or Crown Finish Caves has. Like, it's, it's also good, I think, as a, as a small cheesemaker to know how to make your environment work for you. But Peter, I would, I would have to say that uh, Peter's Cave, being, uh, you know, older than both Margot and uh, our setup, you know, there's a whole wide range of things happening in there. Some good you know, that, micro. It's only been, you know, time time based uh, activity that yep. we don't have. Mm-hmm. Does it take a while? I mean, obviously, to build up the kind of uh, microclimates of little bugs and uh, critters floating around in the air that you want to uh, feed on your on your goods to make them taste better. Uh, it's hard to know. I mean, Yost has somewhat of a new cave as well. Yeah, I've uh, seen Yost's cave. Yeah, it seems to be alive in there. <laughs> I don't think I've ever been the same since I came out of that room. Well, there you go. <laughs> um, I think I've. Uh, Establish some uh, family of microbes in my cave yeah. now. Yes, after two years, well, and I've seen I've seen some changes actually in the uh, in the age of my cave. From uh, I think the microbes which were in there in the beginning, they've kind of been pushed out by microbes um, who are in there now and are taking over. I think. You see the battle of the microclimate waged and the little war waged in front of you all the time. And when it comes to making new things, uh, uh, Margot, does the cave – now the the amount of cows you have and the amount of milk you have obviously dictates the kind of cheeses that you can make. (coughs) But does does – do those microclimates, do they help you think of new things or what's your inspiration and process for wanting um, wanting to create even new things? Um, Like how did you hook up with Benton in in, uh, the Crown Finish Caves and start making them – Washing cheeses in rum and uh, spite <laughs> and spirits and things like that. Like, what's your process to get there? Um, I think, you know, yeah, I'm definitely working with Benton and Sam. We had talked a lot about um, about that special thing that you can do with cheese, which is you can kind of change the outcome of the cheese by these different affinage practices, which I've always thought was really cool um you know instead of reinventing the wheel and trying to come up with a, a whole new process in the vat and in the make room you can tweak the final product in 
through your aging practices. Um, and so just looking, talking with Benton and Sam, we came up with this idea to wash uh, one of our cheeses in particular, the, the Little Dickens, which is a very small um, lactic curd cheese, just very soft and... Yeah, I'm um, looking at one right here in the Heritage uh, Radio uh, studio. It's uh, looking pretty good. Somehow we've got oh, one cool. in here. <laughs> so one problem with radio is that I cannot make anybody know how good it tastes. I mean, I can make chomping and slurping noises, I suppose, or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> but but um, anyway, go on. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, um, so we had just talked about that, that cheese being a cool one to try to wash with with something to apply a wash to because it would really perhaps become very, um, very, very gooey inside with, um, you know, like an A-plus was our inspiration, something like that, that um, just breaks down so much in the paste when you apply um, an alcohol to the rind. So that's what, what we had, you know, just just uh, talked about, and, and that's what they ended up trying to do. And we've done the same thing on our own in our cave, um, just we have friends up here who are brewing um, beers, and they brew seasonal one-off beers, and they did a um, blackcurrant barley wine this winter that was just this beautiful, bright purple color, and we decided to try applying that to one of our cheeses, and it really just gives the rind a whole new look, but it also impacts the flavor of the paste and the way the paste uh, breaks down, the way the microbes break down the paste um, it just comes, I mean, it just turns out totally different, and that's, that's a really cool thing to me, I think. R&D is always the best part of every job. That's the job you want um, in food, I've always, I've always thought, because you get to play with the, you get to play with the food. Um, yeah. You know, and it's, um, I mean, for you, you make these beautiful cheeses, and then you turn them over to uh, mad scientists like uh, Benton, and uh, he does mm-hmm. some other funky stuff. I mean, would you agree with that, Benton? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, we tried a lot of different things, and, you know, taking a lot of notes and watching what's happening and taking a lot of pictures and seeing where things have changed and um, you know we're definitely going to find bad things and, and good things but you know we got to start with a really good cheese and that's what that little Dickens is and um, we you know our environment again uh, you know we don't it's not it hasn't been around a long time I mean it's been around a long time yes it's you know 150 years old but it's uh, hasn't had a lot of cheese in there over that period so um, it is a stable environment so we are able to really see our impact uh, on what's happening in there and we also were you know we were finding when we were aging that that we needed to make some cave adjustments and we were moving maybe too much air through the cave things were drying out a little quicker just things we're definitely we're in a new territory here and we're trying to to fine-tune everything and so doing it again we're gonna we're gonna learn we're gonna learn something new but where do where do you draw the line between ex- experimentation and having standards? Do you know, so there's got to be a baseline of quality that you always have to shoot for, correct? And then, but you want to experiment, you want to, but what? But talk about that first. Well, you need to have a pretty good canvas to work with. Yeah, um, and that cheese is is a great is a great canvas. Um, but I mean, Sam Sam's going to want to weigh on on this as well. But, um, I, you know, I mean, I, th- I think here, at least for us, um, so, you know, we're a, a cheese cave located in Brooklyn, New York. So we kind of have the advantage of having a lot of supportive 
cheese retailers like you, Greg, and other people that are pretty excited about the things that we experiment with and the things that we try. Um, and so far, perhaps we've been lucky that you know none of our experiments have turned out badly. They've all been you know interesting in their own ways. Some have been better than others, but I think that's also certainly an advantage for us that we don't we don't often have trouble marketing these you know interesting one-off experiment cheeses. I mean, I wouldn't say everything is great by any means. We we do a lot of tasting. We try just the rind, eat that, and we just do all different things to see where we can find defects. Yeah. I'm kind of a stickler for defects. Yes. And yes, uh, every time we taste something, I seem to always look for problems. Yeah, of course. You're the boss. And, That's uh, the deal. That's your job. <laughs> and then an hour later, he'll say, oh, actually, you know, I, I think I did like that cheese, as it turns out. Now, do you feel the same way, uh, Margo, about your stuff up there? I mean, I'm sure you do. Um, but do you, in your cave, are you that way? Yeah, that's definitely been... I think that's one of the hardest parts, actually, about, um, you know, being new and developing a product line and the whole time, you know, the first time you put milk in the vat and you try something, that's the first time you've ever made that cheese. And then there's a, a long process to tweaking that recipe, tweaking that uh, process to come out with what you want, you know, what what's perfect in your eyes. And in between the starting point and what's perfect is a lot of in between, there's a lot of in between and you can't just... You know, you can't have such high standards that you just throw it all away. I mean, that would just be crazy. That's a waste um, of milk. That's a waste of milk and just, and time. you know, we, and time and and the whole while we're, you know, feeding these animals. We have the overhead costs of the facility and the, you know, the the whole operation. So, so we need, you know, so it's a balancing act. You don't want to put product out on the market that isn't, is going to be detrimental to your brand and um but you can't have such high i feel like it's you can't have such high standards that you're gonna you're gonna be hurting your own business you know so and i think the beauty although direct marketing is often clunky and cumbersome the beauty in it is that you can show up at a market with something that might be a little bit too salty or a little bit this or a little bit that and you can sample it out to people and you can talk to them about it and you can just be honest about it and say, you know, it's this um, is a work in a progress. Little, it's Help a little on the salty side this time, but you know, it's still, you know, and people can choose for themselves if they like it. And some people love high salt cheeses and, um, you know, so people can, can make that, that choice for themselves. And I have a question now for my, for my, for my surprise guest, uh, Mr. Mr. Volto. Um, now, you and I have had a lot of conversations about uh, why and how to make new, new cheeses, why you would, why you wouldn't, what affects that. Um, and to me, it seems like you, you, all, you stick with the, with the wonderful things you make. You have a couple of hidden cheeses, or you'll be, you know, you'll make bigger, or smaller, or special versions on a very small level for, for people that you like. But um, uh, do you agree with what you're hearing here? Yes, definitely, yes. I agree very much with what uh, Sam said about um, that so close, being so close to the retailers or having such a close relationship with the mongers. It's very easy to um, sell or, or get even get the mongers excited about all your experiments, good or bad, M yeah. mainly. Well... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
But but good and bad is often very uh, relative, subjective. Yeah, it absolutely because, is. True, uh, true. Cheese is a real matter of personal taste. Definitely, yes. Well, this is a really good time to take a short break. Um, but I want to thank all my guests and just hold on a minute. We'll be back in a second uh, talking with these lovely folks again about uh, making new cheese and the processes therein. Listening to Kill Me in the Summertime by Dead Stars. Dairy Farm families of Wisconsin and the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board are proud to underwrite Cutting the Curd on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Wisconsin cheeses have an illustrious heritage of more than 170 years of quality and craftsmanship. During this long and rich history, the art and science of cheesemaking have been captured in time-honored traditions that produce cheese varieties of unsurpassed excellence. Today, Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit www.eatwisconsincheese.com. This is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Hey there, guys. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd. I have many, many guests. We have... uh we're almost going to have to pull in the folding chairs here. Um, uh, the studio is full, and we got someone on the line. So um, I'm happy to have you all. And I wanted to uh, just touch on something we spoke about right near to the end before the break. And this is a question I have for Benton and Sam. Um, I was wondering if you could just tell me, and for you, Margo, um, I wanted to to hear about how your relationship came to be, and what you know, and what like. Like, what's your process in working with one another? Well, um, okay. So I had uh, heard about Margot. Well, I had actually maybe actually met you, Margot, maybe when I was there mm-hmm. studying with Peter there a few years yep. back. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I had known that you had left and started something new, but... Um, I didn't really know what you were making, and um, when Sam was working at Parish Hill, he was like, "You know, I'm friends with Margot. We should go check check her out." And I was like, "Yeah, I want to. I want to check her out." And then uh, he finally sort of set that up to where we could uh, try out the little Dickens down here and the and the pound cake, and um, we were really really excited to get that going. And I think Sam was instrumental in uh, sort of that blending uh of that relationship which is still in its very early stages that, mm-hmm. re- that relationship when you when you uh, sam when you when you wanted the cheese did you see something in it that you could make more or you just want to work with the product that you thought was great well both or certain yeah certainly it would be a little bit of both because i yeah i mean i i love what margo and alex do i think they have a great farm they're producing great milk and great cheese um 
But also, I mean, we mentioned before that a poisse was kind of our inspiration, and that is a particular cheese I've been I've been infatuated f- with for a little while. A poisse, a poisse, because uh, as far as I can tell, you know, that's it's a lactic set washed rind cheese, which is a pretty unusual style of cheese that. As far as I know, isn't just it's not being produced in the United States. I can't think of any and barely in France anymore. And exactly, and so, not to plant any seeds anywhere. So. <laughs> but that, so I just thought that would be you know I, I knew the little Dickens. It was actually you know a very similar format as far as size goes to the Apois, and it's also a lactic set cheese. So I thought that would be a really interesting interesting thing to work with, um, and especially you know we, there's a lot of great craft breweries and distilleries and you know cideries and all kinds of great booze being made around new york city that would be a lot of fun to experiment with people like to make booze here for our listeners who are not cheese makers can you describe to us what a lactic set cheese is i can i can attempt to um talk it like 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 you're talking to idiots like me. Okay, okay. Well, you know, most uh, most cheeses that we know of, anything, you know, from brie to cheddar to parmigiano, reggiano, those are what's called rennet coagulated cheeses. So uh, rennet is the enzyme derived from a calf's stomach that basically turns the milk into a gelatinous mass of curd, and that's Yummy. how you separate your cheese and curd, or your curds and whey, and produce your cheese. But actually, an older form of cheese making is lactic set cheese. So there's actually... You know, lactic acid bacteria naturally inherent in the milk or that you can add to the milk that will acidify it to such a point that it will also coagulate into a gelatinous mass of curd. Um, but the, that kind of cheese is often very delicate and soft, so most of those traditional Lower Valley goat cheese are all lactic set cheese. It's very, very creamy and flaky textured yeah. cheese. Fantastic. I just learned something I never knew. Harder to transport <laughs> when very young. Um, so, like, so, so you saw something in in the cheese and the way that it was made that made you want to work with it and maybe impart your own thing onto it. And yeah, and especially after talking to Margot uh, and Casey and Alex uh, about how they had done done some of their own experimenting, they had washed uh, a couple wheels of Little Dickens with hard cider. And they said that they had turned pretty funky and awesome and ripe. And so that was kind of even more inspiration to try it down here. And she shipped us some that we tasted that were just meaty and just awesome. And, Margo, you were, you were happy with, the, with, with them taking your stuff and making it different than what it was, making it more than what it was. You like that. That's part of the process you respect. That's part of your R&D process. Yeah, yeah. That was. I thought it was awesome to have um, to have uh, Ben and Sam ha- take an interest in the cheese and want to apply their own special twist on it, and then you know put it put it out there, get it get it out in New York where we we haven't done any marketing in New York yet. So it was a good opportunity for us to be able to get our brand out there um, into that marketplace. And Benton, do you when you Find cheeses to age in your cave, or you choosing you're choosing what you want. Um, are you trying to, you know, are you are you putting all of your own creative energy into the final prod, product? Are you are you, are you finding a little thing that you want to harness and blow up? There, there's a lot that goes into it, and right, right now it's you know, pear shill is the majority of what we have in there. But when in the uh, process, we've been talking to a lot of different producers, and you know. Part of it is that you have a marriage with that producer and you need to 
you know, get along with with the producer and be able to have open dialogue about good things, bad things, and and be able to work with each other. So that's that's a really really important part of it. But of course, the quality is very important. So looking for quality and looking for someone that wants it feels like they need you and you have a good good sort of balance right. in your relationship and so there's a lot of sort of pieces to that puzzle that need to be put together and um we've been working on a lot of different things lately now, now yosh you you mature all of your own cheeses correct um yes i do and what are your thoughts on turning over cheeses to a cheese aging cave and what that might impart quality you know to your product do you feel it's necessary um, at the moment, it isn't, it isn't because I have enough room and I, re- I uh, like the aging uh, process. It, I think that's the most exciting part of the whole cheese-making uh, <coughs> process, actually. Um, so there's no necessity to, um, to turn any of my cheeses over to an uh, outside facility. Um, but... Um, that being said, if in the future I would have to, no, I, I wouldn't be against it. I would certainly have all You faith, see the value all, in it on a large scale. All faith in, uh, in uh, Benton and Sam here. And I would ask you all, then, <clears throat> what, how important to you is, uh, is, is cheesemonger feedback? You know, people like me are way, way, way down at very, the end of the very funnel. We don't, we don't care at all about that. <laughs> yeah, we notice. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> of course, it's like very, very important to us. We 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 want it. We ask for it. Don't get it a lot, even when we ask. You know, people are busy. And, you know, they maybe think we're just or trying timid. to sell, sell Some them. People are timid, or they think we're just trying to sell them more cheese. But you know, honestly, we want we well, want. You are, aren't you? Well, maybe. <laughs> well, a little it is bit, a business, but what? we do want good and bad feedback always. Why do you think people are timid? Do you think they're afraid to hurt your feelings? Well, I, I actually, I really noticed this when, when I was working with Peter up at Parish Hill. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I would talk to certain mongers at certain shops, and uh, they would say one thing to me, who, you know, just this humble cheese apprentice, that they'd, be, they'd say some more critical things to me. And then a week later, Peter would talk to the same person, and it'd be nothing but compliments the to the best this. cheese they've ever had in their lives exactly and they're speaking you know he couldn't think of a better cheese yeah. that could ever have been made right yeah well i think i mean that, that that's that just happens in every you know i find in cheese you know people do that they want to kiss there's ass kissery because the the the, the people that run the shops are afraid that they're going to take their stuff away you know i i think um, I mean, we work hard on our relationships with our mongers because we want to have that open dialogue. And it's well, really the people important. that sell your cheese. Yeah. Um, and uh, from uh, Margo, for you, for you, I mean, how many retail shops do you sell almost all your cheese at uh, the farmer's market or very, very, very close to you? What doesn't come down here? Yeah, we do. We sell, I mean, we sell the majority of our cheese right in our own backyard, essentially, at two farmer's markets, which are only go, you know, only only functioning in the summer, um, Memorial Day through Columbus Day, essentially. And then we have uh, just a, a handful of wholesale accounts, just little boutique shops in and around Lake Placid, New York. And, um, and then we have a, a pretty good restaurant um, business selling to restaurants in Lake Placid. And we have a farm store right on the property. And from the farm store, we sell our raw milk and some other local farms products and then our cheeses and we actually have a lot of just traffic coming through there to buy our our products um i think we're 
it works because we're in an in an area where there isn't a lot of um, there, it's not convenient to get food in general. So it it just turns out that our farm store is actually pretty convenient for people to come and and buy eggs and milk and cheese and um, and so we sell a lot from our farm store. Because my geography is terrible, are you up by Saranac Lake? Yes. Um, is you there at, in Saranac Lake? Is that in that in that town? Is that that's a town, right? I'm not a. There, there's Saranac Lake. Yeah, there, there's it's the lake, but the, it's also a place, right? Yes, it's a place. Yep. I have a good buddy who just moved back up there, and um, I have no idea why he did it because he said he just gets too much snow per year. But I just had to ask <laughs> you that question. My my friend uh, Craig Bailey, who's a restaurant owner down here, he moved uh, he moved back up oh, there, and um, he's he's opening he's opening a restaurant in Saranac Lake. That's what I thought. So you do know Craig? That's awesome. Yeah. Don't tell yeah. Craig I gave him a shout out and tell him that Greg said hello. Um, he's a hell okay. of a guy, and then um, hopefully he'll carry your cheese. Um, I wanted to ask you one more question, Benton, about about that feedback that you get from from the end user. How much does that affect what you do in your process? You know, oh, it affects <clears throat> us a lot. So, but but it's a cumulative feedback. Sure, correct. Sure. We we take everything in, talk about it, see if we feel like it's accurate, and uh, then you know consider it seriously. It, it, I mean, these are these are the people that are are constantly tasting cheese, constantly talking to customers. You know, they, they see a lot of different things than we see. You know, we're looking at the same thing over and over and over again, and they are seeing many, many things. I like it. And, uh, I mean, Sam, you've been a part of both. You've been, you've been there in the lab making new cheeses that doesn't exist because I bought cheese from Peter, and I know he makes millions of different kinds of cheese. Um, and, then, uh, and then you're now down here that secondary process. And I was wondering if you could tell me which way do you feel, which aspect do you feel you've had the most ability to affect change on the product in? Um, well, I would say at least in these two instances between working at Parish Hill Creamery and Crown Finish, uh, I've gotten lucky with both of my employers in these cases where they're open a lot to my to my input so you know i if i suggested me or one of the other apprentices at parish hill suggested you know a variation technique in you know the production of like the blue cheese or something peter would would actually peter and rachel would they'd think about it they'd talk about it and sometimes they'd shoot us down and sometimes you know they'd be like oh yeah that's that's a good idea let's try that let's see how it works and and we actually did see you know how some of our suggestions really you know turned out in the final cheeses and then you know, coming down here and really pushing to work with Margot and Alex and get the Little Dickens and the pound cake down here and wanting to try all these different booze washes on the Little Dickens like that. We we were washing with, with hard cider. We had cacao rum. We had bourbon. We had Vinjan wine. We were we yeah. even had some grappa yeah. some moonshine at one point. Like we were uh, we were trying a lot of different things now. My last question is for all of you, and I know Yos has an opinion on this. Do you feel that washing the cheeses in alcohol has an actual tangible effect on the flavor and texture of the cheese? Yos, I'm going to start out with you because I know you have an opinion on this. (laughs) And you want me to express that? Yeah, you're damn right I do. (laughs) It does and it doesn't. 
There are there are cases in which it does. Um, Why? I think in the maybe. I mean, this is all non-scientific, and I'm just making this up um, from yeah, you, how you I just, feel. You just right. go in and pretend to make cheese every right, day. Right, right, exactly. Sure, so, no problem. I think the lower alcoholic um, um, drinks, they have a higher content in yeasts, and they might have a uh, more of an effect on the cheese than I think the, the, the I said the lower uh, alcoholic content um, like uh, beer, right? Cider. Right, ciders, <laughs> maybe yes. Um, but the I think the higher alcoholic content um, washes, I think, have less of an effect. I think they're all kind of doing the same thing, which is um, creating a environment for a certain microbes and um, and uh, bacteria to grow. Although I do have, you you know, I have this uh, one cheese washed in uh, in absinthe. Absolutely, Miranda. What does that do to your cheese? It does what I think main all high alcoholic content uh, washes do. Although I do have people um, customers without knowing it, they have maybe they are super tasters, but they have uh, found some kind of fennel taste in the cheese so mm. it might have an effect it might not do you believe that maybe the, the fact that they've had absinthe before that that the remembering of that flavor is locked in their memory and by eating your cheese it comes out and that's why they're tasting it i'm not sure i don't think so have you tasted I think, any? I think because they've had fennel and then, and then <laughs> they remember the panel. <laughs> Love or hate, Margo. What do you think? Uh, the, the the washes that 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 uh, Benton and these guys and the cider. What did you put? You put Aaron Burr cider on your cheese up there, right? Was it? Was that the? Was that what you used? No. Um, that's oh. what they use. That's what Benton and Sam washed some with. Um, I used a different a different cider when I washed the Little Dickens, but. Um, yeah, I kind of agree with Yost on this one. Like, the beer washes definitely just, um, you're not going to really taste the the nuances of the beer on the cheese. It just provides a nice um, growth medium for, you know, probably yeast to, um, to inhabit the rind. But a more assertive beer, I think, you might taste, like a stout or a porter or when I did the the blackcurrant barley wine, you could definitely taste the blackcurrant, um, the fruity notes from that. But um, And then when you go into the higher alcohol content options, like a grappa or the absinthe or the different high alcohol, um, you know, liquors and things, I think, yeah, you're just, you're just promoting the growth of certain bacteria and you're not. Mm, and yeah, maybe a super taster could taste some nuances from the, the alcohol, but in general, no. I mean, I remember when we were doing the moonshine wash; like that was, it was so strong. I, you, I don't, I don't get think, I don't think, off of it. I don't think anything could grow <laughs> yeah. with that. But that's I mean, it was <laughs> well. And then in the second round of Little Dickens that we did, uh, we had we had a group washed with the Aaron Burr cider, a group washed with the Vin John wine, a group washed with cacao rum, and a group with bourbon. And certainly, the wine washed and the cider washed cheeses kind of along the lines of what Yost was saying, they got way more ripe and funky. There was definitely a lot more activity going on in those cheeses, whereas like the bourbon and the rum wash cheeses, they had a little bit happening, but certainly not quite as much ripening and breakdown and funky things going on. 
And then the color, too. The yeah. aesthetic color was something right. that we would see. Changed. I made him look beautiful. I mean, I ate cheese from your caves that was washed in uh, in um, Transmitter Brewery. Uh, this brewery underneath the Pulaski Bridge here. They got nice and brown and funky. I think, and for me, just as a cheesemonger, I've always felt it affects the texture of the rind. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just was, I, I'm, I'm always... Um, not loathe, but I'm always, you know, to sell cheese, you know, you always try not to be a used car salesman. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you, a little old lady drove this cheese once or twice on the market. It's going to taste like everything they washed, which I just, it just, it, it just doesn't happen that way for me. But I also feel that there is a high value um, to, to washing cheeses in, in alcoholic beverages. I mean, when you look back at, uh, uh, the history of cheese making in places like Flanders, uh, you know, and in, in, in Belgium, or um, in around the the monastic cheeses uh, of those areas have always been washed in beer. Um, I, mm-hmm. I don't I don't know if they were as uh, geeky scientific about it as we are, um, and <laughs> but you know there was definitely a reason for it. You know, I just thought it was an interesting question uh, to ask, and uh, unfortunately, I'm going to have to close this thing down. Um, but I really want to thank all of you guys for coming for coming in, Sam, Yost, Benton, Margo. Um, you're not here, but you're here in spirit, and uh, I hope you're digging yourself out from under whatever massive amount of snow that you have up there. And uh, and you know, thanks for giving us some insight into uh, some R and D of new cheeses. So stay tuned to Cutting the Curd. We'll be back next week, and uh, we're going to do some lovely people, uh, Jacob, Jacobs and Birchford, and they're going to talk about their new cheese. And we're going to continue talking about research and development. Cheers. Have a good evening. Bye bye. The theme song for Cutting the Curd is Cheese Gainsburg by Taxstar. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>